pleasure to welcome to CSIS one more time, uh, Dave Turk. Uh, Dave has had a long career in the U.S. government, and he is now the head of uh, strategic initiatives of the Strategic Initiatives Office at the International Energy Agency in Paris. Um, you know, where I come from, the world of consulting, when you hear an organization or a company call something strategic, it means they are 100% sure it's going to lose money. So I'm not quite sure what the equivalent is in the IA, but I think of Dave as having this function of, of taking on some of the toughest challenges and really help push the boundaries of our understanding on a very complex topic like the energy transition. And that's exactly what he's going to do today. We're in for a, for a great treat. He's going to cover a lot of material. Uh, and uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to pass it over to Dave. He's going to start with some slides and I'm going to ask some questions and then we're going to try to bring you all in. Uh, so please uh, join me in uh, welcoming Dave. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Nikos. Thanks to Ian and the rest of the CSIS team. It's uh, terrific to come over here and uh, be able to have a chance to uh, really have a conversation. And I'll do a presentation here, but uh, hopefully we can uh, get to the Q&A and discussion part of this uh, quite quickly. But thanks for everything, CSIS and Nikos. It's uh, terrific to, uh, to have you uh, to, to do this panel with you uh, today as well. So uh, as you see from the title, we're going to cover a lot here. We've got uh, not only the launch of two, the U.S. launch of two reports, one on nuclear and one on hydrogen, but I'm going to try to put those in a broader frame, an energy transitions frame. And so I'm actually going to start with some broader uh, numbers on energy transitions, look at some sectors, technologies, what are the latest numbers, where do we need to go into the future, et cetera. Uh, one thing to also point out on the title is we purposefully use the plural uh, word on transitions instead of transition. A uh, big reason for that is there is not a single transition happening around the world. There's a variety of transitions happening. Um, even within a country, there's a variety of different transitions, different goals, different technologies uh, being utilized. Uh, and so from the IEA side, being an all of technologies uh, organization, uh, we like to use that framing. And what we try to do, and as you'll see in our analysis here, is try to point out different ramifications of different choices governments, private sector makes. What happens if you go down this path or this scenario? What happens if you go down uh, another way? What are the both opportunities but challenges as well? So hopefully in, in that spirit, we'll, uh, we'll put some good information on the table for the discussion, uh, discussion part of that. So let me start with the first part of the presentation, just to give you some of our latest numbers, where we're at right now. A uh, little bit of bigger picture context when talking about global energy transitions. So first, uh, let's just look at 2018. What are the latest numbers that we have happening in the world of energy? Here you see the numbers for uh, global primary energy demand from 2011 to 2018, relatively steady for several years. 2015-16 went down a little bit. 2017 was a big number. That means more uh, energy demand uh, around the world. And 2018, as the title of this slide said, was really a remarkable year for an energy, a very significant increase. That's a 2.3% increase in energy use uh, around the world. You see the breakdown there, gas, renewables, oil, coal, nuclear. Uh, gas is the biggest of those at 45%, a really quite significant increase in gas demand around the world. And the U.S., uh, which is responsible for a significant portion of that extra gas demand and gas production, uh, that's a 10% increase in 2018, just to give you a sense of the change and the, the dyna dynamicism going on in the, the, the gas side of things. Of that 2.3% increase, a full 70% of that was just from three countries. 
So the U.S., China, and India was responsible for 70% of that increase in energy demand, uh, just, to, just to break that down for you. If you look at electricity, the electricity increase was even higher. So if overall energy increased 2.3%, electricity was 4%. So electricity is growing faster. More things are being electrified. We'll see that, and we'll get a few slides in here on EVs uh, and some other technologies that are uh, also le leading to that, uh, that, that role. Um, another interesting number is on energy efficiency, energy intensity improvements. Uh, 2015 was a good year, about a 3% improvement. That is 3% uh, more GDP per energy going into the system. We've actually seen that slide decrease over the next uh, uh, two years after that, 2016, 2017. The 2018 number was quite discouraging, actually, at 1.3% uh, increase. We're still improving the efficiency of the world's energy use, but at a much slower rate than we were able to do just a few years ago and a much lower rate, and I'll get into this a little bit more detail, than we need to if we want to achieve our Paris goals or uh, some of our other goals that countries have set out. The red bar that you see there around 3% is what we need to average every year from an energy efficiency perspective for efficiency to do its part to get us to that Paris goal, to get us to those climate reductions at well below two scenarios. So efficiency improvements for a number of reasons, and I'm happy to get into this if, if folks want to at the discussion portion of this the session. Overall, on the emission side, uh, what we saw in 2014, 15, and 16 was a flattening of overall energy emissions coming from the energy, or CO2 emissions coming from the energy sector. Great news. We hope that that was a decoupling from GDP growth, which grew each of these years, um, that we were decoupling emissions growth from energy uh, or from uh, uh, CO2 emissions. 2017, unfortunately, saw a significant increase, a 1.6% increase, and 2018 was an even larger increase in CO2 emissions coming from the energy sector, a 1.7% uh, uh, increase. Now, that is a lot of emissions. Uh, that's roughly equal to, depending on how you count it, aviation around the world. So we added an additional aviation sector above and beyond what we already have in terms of global CO2 emissions coming from the energy. And this is energy writ large. This isn't just electricity. This is transport. This is industry. This is the full range of energy use. Now, not every country increased. Some countries had significant increases. Some countries and regions actually had decreases. Uh, one good news story here is the UK, which had another decrease. Uh, and they've actually gone down to the emissions profile of where they were at in 1888. So they've uh, gone up in emissions, and then they've been able to decrease their emissions in pretty significant ways for a whole number of reasons, uh, reasons recently. So let's uh, take a little bit uh, of a look ahead, if you will. Uh, we do scenario work at the IEA. These are not supposed to be forecasts. These are looking at a set of assumptions and where does that take us uh, on a variety of uh, metrics going forward. This is what we call our new policy scenario, which is basically taking into account all existing policies as well as new policies that we're confident are going to come into place in the near future. So this does include the nationally determined contributions from the Paris Agreement to give you a sense of what's included in that. What you see there is uh, emissions continue to increase going to 2040. So under the status quo of ambition, it's another way to think of this scenario, you're going to see uh, emissions continue to increase all the way to 2040. We're not peaking, we're not decreasing. To contrast this with what we call our sustainable development scenario, which is not only a well below two degree scenario, a Paris compliance scenario, it also has very steep reductions in air pollution, which is a big issue for many, many countries uh, around the world. 
and also provides universal electricity access uh, to uh, the whole world by 2030. That is the green scenario there. So the delta between those two is where we're currently headed under existing ambition and where uh, world governments have said we want to go. That's the sustainable development scenario. These are our wedges. Some of you, especially who've uh, followed the IEA work for years, have seen this kind of analysis before. Uh, no surprise that efficiency and renewables are, are responsible or would be responsible under a low cost optimization modeling scenario. That's what the sustainable development scenario, efficiency and renewables are the two big areas of uh, opportunity. But um, very importantly, that there's a number of others, and we'll get to nuclear in depth with the launch of our, the US launch of our nuclear report, but CCUS, fuel switching, other. Uh, really to make the point, the challenge is enormous going from that blue line to that green line. And from the IEA perspective, very difficult to start taking options off the table. It makes it that much more difficult to actually get us to where uh, we, need to, uh, we need to go. So this is a, a, an analysis we do every year. These are the very latest numbers coming from that analysis. This went just live uh, about a month or so ago called our Tracking Clean Energy Progress. And what we try to do is break down the energy sector into power industry, transport buildings, fuel supply, and then energy integration. It ends up being about 45 different sectors and technology across the energy spectrum. And we look at the progress that's been made in each of those sectors and technology, deployment rates, investment rates, R&D, price points, et cetera, um, and give them a color code. If it's green, it means that that sector or that technology is doing its share under our modeling assumptions to get us to that sustainable development scenario. If it's yellow, it means it's making some progress, not enough, some progress, and then red is the worst, so the typical traffic light scenario. What you see there, unfortunately, is not a whole lot of green. There's only seven of the 45 categories that, uh, that are green that are doing their share, and I'll get to a few of these in a little bit more uh, detail in a minute. We have 22 yellow and then 16 uh, red. So this is meant to be a conversation starter. This isn't the IA knows everything and this is the definitive analysis. This is meant to be a conversation starter and a way of looking at a big picture of where we're at by technology, by, by sector. So let's just get into a, a little bit of uh, the, the numbers behind some of these. These are the renewables numbers where we put our historic numbers, our forecast numbers, and our SDS. That's a sustainable development scenario all in one place to show the current trajectory, where it's likely to go in the next few years, and then where it needs to go. You see the breakdown there, hydropower, of course, being the biggest historically, but then onshore wind, the yellow coming strong for many years, and then solar PV really coming strong in the last uh, few years, increasing even further. Now, what's interesting about this, and you can see this visually, is renewables as a whole is not on track to do its share, to do that wedge if you remember from that previous chart, to, to do its share going forward. Um, it is increasing, it's increasing significantly, but it's not doing its share. Uh, in fact, only two of the renewables categories, solar PV and bioenergy, are doing their share, are green. The other ones, including onshore wind, uh, is yellow, and some are red, not making much progress at all. Again, diversification of renewables helps for all sorts of things, including grid stability uh, going forward. Now, just to give you a sense of, well, which renewables are making the most impact these days, um, this is looking at renewables growth. So these are capacity additions coming from solar, from wind, from hydro, from bioenergy. And what you see, especially recently, is the solar PV revolution. Those increases significantly uh, globally uh, to the point that there are more solar additions than wind additions in the last uh, few years. Now, let me give you the very latest numbers here in 2018. Um, 
What you see here is a bit of a uh, peaking or a stalling of the capacity additions even on the solar PV side. So the revolution in renewables has not been won. There's a lot more work that needs to be done, a lot more policy, a lot more uh, market structures, et cetera, that uh, needs to look at that going, going forward. Uh, CCUS, this is CCUS and power. We break CCUS from CCUS and power and industry. What you see here is um, one of the more challenging areas where we're not seeing a whole lot of progress. Um, so you can see the line there at the very bottom, um, very difficult to see, that's the light blue current developments. Some CCUS projects, only two large scale CCUS projects, and these are power projects. There's more in industry, but these are power projects. And under our low cost modeling assumptions, CCUS needs to do a lot of work. By 2030, you see the number in front of you, and 2040, even more. So CCUS is uh, one of those categories that's red, not making the kind of progress uh, we need to, see it, uh, need to see it going forward. Now, there are bright spots in CCUS. Uh, one of the brightest spots is, frankly, uh, the 45Q legislation in the U.S. that was passed not too long ago that we're paying very close attention to. I know a number of other countries are paying, paying close attention to, and we'll see what kind of impact that has, uh, that has going forward. Electric vehicles, electric vehicles is green. That's had some significant progress. Those 2 million new electric vehicles coming into the market. Many of those, I think it's about 45% or though in the China market, but uh, in the US and a number of other countries around the world. Norway had the highest per capita electric vehicles, uh, right around 40, 45% uh, in Norway and uh, some other countries having significant percentage increases. I'm gonna change the axis here um, as I click from million cars um, to then tens and hundreds of millions of cars. So you still see the 5 million or so roughly represented there in 2018, but this is where electric vehicles needs to go forward for it to do its share again to get us to that sustainable development scenario. So very significant numbers, especially as you look to 2025, 2030, and even going beyond that. So we are seeing major improvements in electric vehicles, very major deployments. Most of those, frankly, are in jurisdictions which have uh, incentives of one kind or another for electric vehicles. So it is still very much government-driven uh, in terms of the revolution, although price points, especially in batteries, are, are decreasing. Energy storage was another bright area. It was green this year. That's an upgrade from yellow in the previous year. Uh, and especially looking at the uh, battery storage side of the equation, which had significant increases. It's still a very small share, especially when you looked at pumped hydro, which is the biggest share by far of the, the kind of storage technologies. But um, we did see significant increases. You see it broken up there by geography and then whether it was behind the meter or uh, grid scale. R&D investment, um, innovation. We focus a lot of that on uh, the IEA. What are governments doing on the R&D side of things? It's around 20 billion US dollars collectively in the clean energy R&D space, which ends up being the vast bulk of the overall R&D space in energy governments around the world. Uh, this includes nuclear, this includes renewables, includes a variety of clean energy technologies. It's a broad definition along those lines. Now, 20 billion is either a lot or not that much uh, if you think about the scale of the challenge. Uh, 20 billion is about the same that uh, one of the largest uh, ICT companies spends on R&D just within its own company on a yearly basis. So one company versus all the governments around the world on energy, clean energy efforts going forward. We saw an increase in 2017 of about 7%, uh, increase in 2018 of another 5%. Uh, and so we are seeing some improvements, some increases. You see the breakdown there, no surprise, of course, the US being the largest 
uh, and most innovative, especially if you look at our 17 national labs in the US and all the uh, R&D work going on there, uh, Europe, Japan, China increasing significantly over the last several years. That's the red towards the top, uh, towards the top of those bars. Uh, we also track uh, uh, private sector capital going into clean energy innovation. This is just a slice of that. This is the venture capital side of things. And what's quite striking here is we have seen some significant increases over the last several years. 2018 was a particularly big year for VC uh, investment in clean energy. And you see the vast bulk of that is that light blue, the transport. So the transport side is really seeing um, the VC activity, we're seeing some other areas see parts of that, but it's really transport, uh, transport dominated. So one last slide, big picture, and this is just to give you a sense of the changing nature of energy demand uh, around the world. This is the snapshot from 2000. I'm going to turn on the animation here, and you can see the red China bar increasing significantly over a relatively short amount of time. You also see the India numbers uh, significantly increasing and even Southeast Asia and Africa. Now I'm gonna go forward from 2017 to 2040 in the next animation and certainly keep your eye on the India, Southeast Asia and Africa in particular. And what we see is uh, we have seen very significant changes, uh, certainly increases in Asia in particular, China and India, but Southeast Asia, but starting to see that in Africa. So there's a changing, again, this shouldn't be a surprise to most people in the room, but useful to see that um, kind of uh, in graphic form. One little nugget, if you will, there on the India side is uh, either even under relatively conservative scenarios going forward, uh, our projections are that India would add onto its already sizable electricity grid the size of uh, an electricity grid of Europe on top of that. So over the next 20 years, India itself will have an electricity grid the size of Europe added onto what it already has, just to give you a sense of the dynamicism and scale of, of some of the increases in those countries. So that's the big picture kind of summary. Again, I've been selective in different uh, sectors and technologies, some of the more dynamic or interesting ones. Uh, I'll now turn to our nuclear report. And uh, this is something new for the IA. Uh, we have focused, of course, on nuclear over the years. It's one of the important parts of the uh, energy spectrum, especially we'll see that in electricity numbers that I'll show you in a minute. Uh, but we've not done a full-blown report like this, uh, frankly, in the last couple decade period of time. And there's a reason that we wanted to do this. I think it'll become clear as we show the analysis from this report, but it was a very significant, uh, significant undertaking on our side. And we focus mostly on advanced economies and what's going on in advanced economies, especially as we uh, face a variety of retirement decisions or whether we retire or, or do lifetime extensions of 10, 20 years or even beyond. These are the numbers right now looking at low carbon electricity generated worldwide. Nuclear is uh, responsible for about 10% uh, overall of electricity generated worldwide in 2018. Now I'm gonna change this to just uh, advanced economies. And you see in advanced economies, which is of course a subset of the overall worldwide numbers, advanced economies, nuclear is actually the largest of any of those categories. It's around 18% of electricity generated by advanced economies in the 2018 time period. And quite a lot higher, of course, than wind, bioenergy, solar, PV. In fact, all of those combined don't get you to the nuclear, uh, the nuclear numbers uh, currently. Uh, worldwide, that's 452 reactors, just to give you a sense of uh, what that actually uh, looks like in terms of the, the, the kind of footprint out there, if you will. Now, this is the uh, cumulative CO2 emissions avoided by nuclear power worldwide. 
you see, of course, the U.S. and the EU, those are the two at the very bottom there and the different shadings of blue being responsible for the most significant portion of that, other countries uh, less so. Developing economies getting into the game, and there really is a difference in what's going on right now in advanced economies versus what's going on in China and some other developing economies in terms of the nuclear equation. But you see the developing economies only getting into the business, if you will, more, more recently. This is, uh, for those who track these kinds of things, this is a lot of emissions. It ends up being 60 billion tons cumulative over that uh, period of time, that 50 years. That's about twice the amount of uh, current emissions that the world produces each year now. So we basically have saved two years of overall global emissions because of nuclear over this 50 year uh, period of time. Again, just to give you a sense of the scale. Now, um, this, I'll explain this chart a little bit more. There's a lot of bars here, obviously. This is the share of non-fossil energy. It's actually the share of electricity from different fuels and sources. So oil is the highest, or the, the, the one on the top that's decreased, of course, uh, significantly in recent time. Very few countries now produce electricity from oil. Natural gas increasing, of course. Coal, uh, the highest, uh, the biggest uh, historically and the biggest today. And then you see renewables and nuclear down at the bottom, renewables in orange and nuclear in the yellow space. One thing we've already seen in nuclear um, is because of the percentage decrease in nuclear from advanced economies, you see there being a high around the late 90s and then decreasing from there. If you actually look at renewables and nuclear together around that late 90s time period, you see that that's just a little bit less than 40%. So uh, 20 or so years ago, we had Nuclear and renewables, the kind of uh, low carbon electricity generation at around 38, 37%. What you see if you fast forward to 2018, even with that significant renewables increase, solar, PV, wind, all the numbers we just looked at, the percentage is the same. So the percentage is still 37, 38% of global electricity being produced from low carbon sources. So for all the progress that we've made in renewables, it's basically been eaten away by the lack of progress on the nuclear front to even hold steady in terms of its percentage. So again, that's another way to show the importance of nuclear uh, historically over the last uh, few decade period of time. Now, the nuclear feed is uh, aging. This is why we really did this report focused on advanced economies. You see the numbers in front of you. The US average age right now is 39 years for its nuclear our nuclear plants, the European Union is about 35 uh, years. You see Japan, India, China, you see that China is about nine years. So it's uh, quite a, a new nuclear, uh, nuclear, nuclear fleet uh, along those lines. And what we did is, uh, because we're already starting to see some of these trends, early retirements, that is uh, not doing the lifetime extensions of these nuclear plants beyond their 40-year original lifetime uh, planned, um, there are a lot of lifetime extensions having happened in the U.S. and other countries, but it's not a uh, foregone conclusion. Uh, it's an active debate going on in a variety of countries, advanced economies around the world. What we did is uh, let's do a scenario looking at what happens if countries in the advanced economies don't make the decision to do those lifetime extensions. They just run out their nuclear fleets for whatever years they originally planned for, um, and then there's no lifetime extensions and no additional nuclear coming on in advanced economies. And this is what you see. You see a huge decrease over the not too uh, distant future. So that's a quarter reduction in the amount of nuclear capacity that we would have in 2025 and a full two thirds reduction by 2040. 
again, this is just not extending those lifetimes uh, as they come up for the uh, for, for their extension uh, extension decisions along those lines. Here's what it looks like broken up. Uh, the U.S. is the uh, the lighter blue category. The European Union is the darker, and so you see it even being a more stark uh, decrease uh, decrease on the uh, on the European side. The U.S. numbers go from about 20 percent of current electricity production being nuclear in the U.S. Under this nuclear fade case or scenario, we go down to about 8%. So that gives you a sense of, uh, a sense of what's, uh, what's, at, uh, what's on, the, on the, the consideration block, if you will, uh, along those lines for those extension decisions. Now, what are the consequences of that? What, what does that mean in terms of what happens with the energy uh, economy more generally? What that means is you need other fuels to make up that difference, right? So here you see the coal and gas increase uh, numbers. No surprise that the gas increase would be higher given the economics going on, certainly in the U.S., but even in other countries. You see a significant increase in CO2 emissions coming from that uh, coal in particular, but the gas as well. Uh, that's four gigatons. That is a significant amount. That's over 10 percent of current global emissions. Uh, and you also see it being more expensive, and I'll get to this in a minute in terms of the relative cost uh, of nuclear extensions versus other fuels. You see a significant amount, that's uh, over 300 billion U.S. dollars, increase in new power plants, gas, coal, but also renewables, and then very significantly on the transmission and distribution side of things. If you have less nuclear baseload power, more renewables, you're going to need to deal with that uh, with some transmission and distribution investments leading to our analysis showed a total electricity supply cost to consumers uh, quite significant, over $40 uh, billion per year uh, going forward. So that's the consequence if the world decides, governments make their decisions not to extend lifetime, not to do lifetime extensions on the nuclear side of things. Now here's the cost numbers. So what we tried to do is look, and I'll show you the U.S. numbers first, and then I'll show you comparable numbers on the European side and the Japanese side of what is the levelized cost of electricity uh, in 2018? So here's the coal, here's the gas combined cycle. No surprise, uh, we are in the midst of a natural gas revolution in the U.S. side. The cost significantly lower on the gas side of things. Here's the uh, renewables numbers for solar PV, wind onshore, wind offshore. These numbers have decreased uh, significantly, and we would expect them to decrease even further uh, going forward. So on the wind side, that was a 15% reduction in cost just over the last five years. On the solar PV side, it was a 65% cost reduction over those five years. Uh, and we can certainly expect uh, more of that going into the future, but that's the existing cost. Here's the new nuclear cost, um, higher, quite a bit higher than the gas, about twice as high as the gas combined cycle, about even with solar PV, quite a bit higher than the wind onshore. And then when you look at lifetime extension, and again, the levelized cost is trying to do a bit of an apples to apples comparison to try to um, put this in the frame, you see it very cost effectively, um, even lower than the wind onshore and right around the same level as uh, gas combined cycle. Now, if you think about that intuitively, that makes sense. All the investment was made to build those nuclear plants. What you're doing is the safety upgrades, other upgrades to allow them to extend whether 10 or 20 or even beyond those periods of times. So, a lot of the capital costs up front have been, uh, have been dealt with. But that's the difference, especially on the lifetime uh, extension side of things. Now, there's a lot of reasons governments aren't taking advantage of this economic opportunity. Different countries are situated differently. Obviously, Japan is situated in a different position with the politics from what happened in Fukushima. 
uh, et cetera. And there's a number of reasons for, the, for, for a lot of the decisions that are being made in different countries. Just to give you a comparison, this is what uh, the European Union looks like. So no surprise that the gas combined cycle is higher, the new nuclear is higher, some of the other numbers are higher, but the lifetime extension is around that same level on the European uh, context. And you see it being even more cost competitive on the EU side of things than on the US side. Here's the US, here's the EU. And here's the Japanese numbers, just to give you a sense of where Japan is, especially because they don't have some of the nice renewables capabilities capacities, opportunities that the U.S. has in particular with solar PV, but even some of the, some of the wind opportunities uh, as well. So let me conclude the nuclear part of this analysis. Um, what we lay down are some recommendations. Again, it's up for governments to figure out, do the politics work or not? Um, but um, on the lifetime extension, we thought there were two things in particular that governments should really focus on uh, going forward. One is to really value uh, the clean nature of nuclear power uh, and its contributions more generally to electricity security. So on the clean nature of it, it's the fact that it is a uh, CO2, low CO2, no CO2 power source. Uh, most markets around the world um, don't value that to the extent that they should if you're trying to think from a kind of economic rationality perspective. Related to that is valuing it for that baseload power nuclear providing that baseload power, which is going to, from our analysis, going to be even more important going forward as we get more higher levels of renewables penetration going forward, value, valuing putting a price or some kind of incentive or market scheme um, to value that uh, contribution from the nuclear side. That is the top recommendation, if you will. Um, and it really is trying to provide a level playing field, taking into account all of the different factors going forward. Secondly, and certainly the safety uh, issue, especially public percep per perception of safety, uh, is clarify those safety requirements. Really um, do the work necessary, um, the investment necessary, the policy updates necessary um, to provide comfort for those life extensions and the more flexible operations. There are some instances where nuclear is ramping up, ramping down. France is the uh, case where that's happening the most, where nuclear can play an even stronger role in a uh, 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 energy systems, electricity systems of the future with that higher renewables penetration in particular. Now we focused most of this report on the lifetime extensions because we thought this was an area that needed focus, the, the numbers that we just went through for policymakers to make decisions. But we also have some recommendations on the new construction uh, side of things as well, including um, promising technology, small modular reactors, micro reactors uh, as well. And the US uh, DOE is spending a, a lot of investment in that and a lot of focus in that among other countries uh, around the world. So that's the nuclear piece. I know this is a lot, but hopefully uh, we're moving through quite quickly. So hopefully this is uh, uh, interesting and engaging for everyone. Now I'm gonna focus on a technology. Uh, the quip about hydrogen sometimes is it's, the, it's always the technology of the future. And uh, what we saw is a lot of interest from a variety of countries, a wide variety, a much wider variety of countries and companies around the world in hydrogen right now. And so we did uh, uh, our most extensive analysis of hydrogen effort, literally uh, dozens and dozens of analysts across the agency looking at hydrogen. Where are we at now? Where are the numbers? And where could we be going into the future? And again, trying to provide some recommendations uh, of ways ahead, very common sense, uh, real world recommendations. So um, just to give you a little context for those who don't follow hydrogen on a regular basis, um, we are seeing a, a momentum that we've not seen before. Now, nuclear, or not nuclear, 
hydrogen has had uh, moments of time where we have seen some interest. The last one was maybe 10, 15 years ago, the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration during that time period had an interest in hydrogen. There was another cycle of interest before that as well. So we've seen these cycles of interest, but what we're seeing now is um, that being not just a few countries and a few sectors and a few companies, but a much broader interest for a whole variety of reasons not only from a decarbonization perspective, but energy diversification and security, et cetera. And uh, we tried to boil down into uh, well, why is that momentum? Why is that focus happening right, right now? And we thought there were three primary reasons for it right now. Uh, first is, as a lot of countries are facing more and more renewables integration, and we talked about this in the nuclear context as well, uh, hydrogen is one of the technologies that could really uh, provide some storage uh, flexibility and some storage opportunities. Now, we talked about uh, the, the battery storage increasing, doubling over recent years. We are seeing battery storage. But right now, unless the technology changes, that is shorter duration storage. Hydrogen, because it's uh, liquid, it's molecules uh, being stored, offers not only hourly, daily, or even seasonal storage opportunities. And if you think about the seasonal differences in solar PV and wind, that could be a very attractive way, again, as a part of the low carbon, uh, low carbon future going forward. And a number of countries uh, are looking at it for that potential. Secondly, a lot of countries and many countries an increasing number of countries are putting on the target, are putting on the table very aggressive uh, decarbonization targets going to net zero by 2050. Denmark just upgraded its uh, number from 40% to a 70% decrease in its CO2 emission profiles by 2030. So a number of governments over the next several decades are looking to go to net zero, decarbonize, um, even difficult to uh, abate uh, sectors. So this is steel, chemicals, trucks, especially the heavy duty or long, long haul uh, ships and planes. What's the technology solution to deal with those issues? And hydrogen offers up a number of possibilities um, to decarbonize those hard to abate sectors. Third one uh, is enhancing energy security. For a number of countries, you can certainly see this coming from a Japanese perspective. This offers some diversification of the fuel mix, flexibility. And uh, hydrogen is a very versatile medium. It's not only hydrogen, it can be ammonium, it can be stored in a variety of different chemical compositions uh, with all sorts of uh, opportunities going forward. So the versatility is one of its attractive natures, especially as we look to the um, uh, energy uh, transitions, energy markets of the future. Now, there are serious challenges, uh, and we outline these report in, uh, these in our report in great detail. Uh, the costs in particular, right now, the costs of hydrogen production, especially from electrolysis, from renewables, is high. I'll give some numbers of that in a minute. Infrastructure needs to be developed. Um, you need to have the transmission, the distribution of that hydrogen. What's the plan to do that? Uh, cleaner hydrogen is needed and, and regulatory barriers, harmonization, standardization are also key challenges. And I'll get to all of those uh, in a minute. One thing that's not known, and this was actually quite surprising um, um, to many of us, and, and this was a report I helped co-lead within the IEA, um, is we already have a lot of hydrogen in the system right now uh, being produced. You see the bar there, it's mostly chemicals, mostly for agricultural purposes, ammonium, uh, but also refining. This is a lot of hydrogen. Just to give you a sense of the scale, uh, a full 6% of natural gas today is used to produce hydrogen. 2% of coal today is used to produce hydrogen. So we're dealing with a huge amount of hydrogen production already. As we'll get to in a minute, it's coming from natural gas, primarily a little bit in coal in the China context. 
Um, but that is a huge amount of production already happening. And it has a big CO2 footprint. Um, right now, that's the emissions of uh, the UK and Indonesia combined just from producing hydrogen today. So it's, uh, it's a big industry, if you will, or set of industries. Now, here are the production costs today. Natural gas, quite low. Even with CCUS, it adds some to the cost. Um, coal right now, mostly in China. And then the renewables band right there, and it varies uh, by country and region, depending on the renewable resources, the assets, uh, et cetera. But that's why the production right now is, is coming from gas primarily in, uh, again, coal in the China context. Uh, but there's a lot of hydrogen in the system right now. So one of the focuses of, of that is, well, look at that existing production and how do you, um, how do you decarbonize? How do you make that cleaner? Um, here is hydrogen production looking across the world. Um, and we have a significant number of operational CCUS uh, using uh, or producing hydrogen, uh, uh, hydrogen-related CCUS uh, efforts going on right now. There are seven projects around the world, some at quite significant scale. Many of those are uh, EOR-related, uh, enhanced oil recovery-related. What we saw when we looked around the world, there where are those planned efforts going forward? And what we see is an additional 15. So seven and additional 15 get you to 22 in the relatively short amount of time. That's starting to get to a significant amount of scale on the CCUS front, assuming all those projects, uh, all those projects go forward. You see quite a few in Europe, uh, geographically distributed, some in Australia. All of the European projects on CCUS right now are hydrogen related, just to give you a sense of the connection between the hydrogen and the CCUS, uh, CCUS side of the equation. Now that's, uh, that's, for those who follow these things, that's blue hydrogen. So that's taking hydrogen produced by fossil fuels using CCUS to decarbonize it, referred to kind of colloquial as the blue hydrogen. And then there's green hydrogen, which is produced from renewables through electrolysis. When we looked at the numbers going on over the recent past and then more recently, uh, we actually do see a significant amount of global electro electrolysis uh, capacity additions uh, and quite a bit bigger sizes of those units coming online. Now, the price points still need to be worked at. We need to drive those costs down, but we're starting to do some of that in the learning, uh, learning by doing. When we look longer term at what is the renewables hydrogen potential around the world, um, this map shows a combination of many things all in one place. Uh, it looks at both solar PV and wind potentials around the world and um, adds those two together. So you see some places where uh, solar and wind are together and they're high. Um, and this is the relative cost of producing hydrogen into the future. So this is looking into the future of what price points could get to if we drive down those costs significantly at scale. What you see is those prices end up being quite attractive um, going forward if you get to that $2, uh, $2 per kilogram of hydrogen. Um, that is quite attractive even to today's market on uh, gas, uh, gasoline usage ar around the world. What you also see here is many of those areas with the best potential for producing clean hydrogen, green hydrogen, um, are in areas where population centers aren't. So you see Australia having significant amounts. You see parts of China not on the coast where their population centers are, but more inland. You see North Africa um, and you see Chile. And you, already saw, you can already see some really interesting, um, if we get to hydrogen transport um, internationally, some interesting opportunities to export sunshine, as it's called. So you produce the hydrogen in areas where the costs are low, 
and then you uh, transmit that uh, by shipping across to uh, different parts uh, of the world. More on that in a minute. Now here's the, uh, the challenge. There will, and, and even under um, kind of announced policies, announced status quo ambition, we will see more hydrogen in the system. We'll see it uh, significantly in chemicals and refining, but we also will see, and this is the gray part of the chart, in new uses, buildings, trucks, cars. We are going to see uh, an additional amount of that. The challenge for hydrogen in some ways is to grow that bar as big as it can be grown to really diversify hydrogen's use and have its, uh, have its promise reach its potential. This is the last slide of the presentation. I know it's been a lot of slides uh, for, for you all. Um, instead of just putting together a generic, uh, here are some things governments should do on hydrogen, we really focused our efforts on what we call kind of key near-term opportunities. If you really want to have hydrogen play a versatile role in a clean energy transition 10, 20, 30 years from now, you've got to do work now. What are those opportunities around the world in a real-world context to really get that hydrogen production at scale? Um, to reduce those emissions from the existing amounts of hydrogen. We call them springboards. What are these opportunities, these springboard opportunities to really get us uh, to that hydrogen, uh, that future where hydrogen plays a significant role? And we identified four of these. None of these should be a surprise. We outline each of these in detail in the report, again, in an operational kind of way, in an actionable kind of way for governments, for industry, et cetera. One is industrial hubs. Right now, a lot of this hydrogen is produced in industrial hubs, uh, many of which are along the coast as well, which you can then think of the international trade components. So there's a lot of uses um, where uh, hydrogen is already being produced that can then uh, lend itself to scaling up even further to the CCUS opportunities. So really focus on those industrial hubs. It's where hydrogen is already produced. Take advantage of that low hanging fruit. Secondly is existing gas grids. Uh, right now, hydrogen can be pumped in with natural gas uh, a relatively small percentage, about 5%, depending on the particular infrastructure. But that's a huge additional amount of hydrogen that can be in the system without much difference, much upgrades in the uh, natural gas grids, the transmission and distribution grids. If you want to go above that 5% or roughly 5%, uh, you need to make significant additional investments to go fully hydrogen, et cetera, dealing some, with some of the safety issues, et cetera. But you can already put a lot of hydrogen into existing gas uh, infrastructure in ways that are pretty uh, quite cost effective. Third is mobility, and mobility is an area where hydrogen gets its most focus, uh, if you will, the fuel cell vehicles side of things. What we try to outline in the report is to think, uh, think smart on your mobility side of things. Take advantage of, again, those lower cost opportunities. So on the uh, transport side, it's fleets, government fleets, where you can refuel all your vehicles in one place so you don't have to build that infrastructure uh, more generally for, for refueling, which is, can be quite extensive. Freight, focus on that long distance transport option. Electric vehicles are really, um, uh, battery uh, storage is really uh, capturing that EV market. We've seen the numbers previously on that end. But batteries technology right now doesn't solve that longer distance, and especially the freight, the truck transport um, as well. And then the others is corridors. Really focus your infrastructure, your refueling, your hydrogen refueling stations on those key corridors. You don't need to build them everywhere, build those corridors. And again, the more you get those cost reductions and the more you get those uh, refueling stations, the infrastructure out there, the cost reductions will take place. And so it's a strategy for that investment. And then the fourth key opportunity is focused on international trade. If you don't already start thinking about international trade opportunities, doing the work just like what was done in LNG uh, decades ago, you're not going to get to that uh, potential going forward. We already start seeing that uh, with um, Japan and with uh, Australia and New Zealand. 
you're starting to have other areas of the world start thinking about those opportunities as well. So our fourth key recommendation is countries should already be thinking about that, looking at those opportunities, building out those, uh, those, uh, those, the infrastructure to help start that international trade that may get us to where we need to go uh, to go in the future. So that's uh, it for the presentation. I know that was a lot, two launches and a bunch of other uh, recent analysis that was out there. But um, the more I work at the IEA and work in the energy space, uh, everything's interconnected. So I think it's actually useful to think about how the hydrogen piece fits with the nuclear piece, fits with all these other uh, technology happenings out there. It is an interdependent energy world, energy markets, and governments need to be making decisions, private sector companies need to be making decisions with that full context uh, in mind. So hopefully the presentation was helpful uh, on that account. I told you that we were in for a treat, and I hope uh, you now understand why. What a, a great presentation, so much material. You put a lot of things on the table, David. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to sort of go back to the, you know, clean energy track at the beginning. It seems so long ago that we started talking about that. Um, and one of the big wedges you have there is efficiency. And clearly, when I look at the building sector, when I look at the industry sector, I see a lot of red, I see a lot of yellow. Um, the IEA just launched the Global Commission for Urgent Action on Energy Efficiency. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that commission is, is meant to do. Now, thanks, uh, thanks, Nico. So let me just scroll back just so we have it on the screen so everybody can, uh, I know there was a lot of slides. I'm sure you've memorized all the slides. We'll have a quiz after the, uh, the session here. Let me put this one, uh, this one back on in terms of the efficiency improvements or lack thereof we've seen, uh, we've seen recently. So this is, uh, this is really, uh, should be a wake-up call for all of us, and it's a real reason we uh, have implemented this new Energy Ef Efficiency Commission. Uh, made up of uh, a couple dozen uh, experts, diverse experts from around the world, political leaders, business leaders, academics, uh, et cetera, from a variety of different sectors, uh, industry, buildings, et, et cetera. Um, this is not good. This is low-hanging fruit for those who are involved in efficiency. Um, there's all sorts of cost-effective ways you can get more efficiency in buildings in industry. Uh, we've done an analysis called the efficient world scenario, uh, which says that using existing technologies, nothing fancy, um, if you had the right policy mechanisms, uh, right financial schemes, you can get to that 3% quite, I won't say easily, but uh, technically easily, right? Like the economics work out for it. Um, but we're not there. We're not even in making improvements to get there. Uh, we're actually going in the wrong direction. And so our hope was let's have a commission, let's have a group of experts, diverse experts, take a look at this issue. Um, raise the uh, profile on it, which is one of the big challenges on energy efficiency. Everybody says we should do it, but it doesn't get the same attention a lot of times as, as other things that are more technically interesting or, or whatnot. Uh, and to provide some recommendations, and again, everything we do, we do at the IA is really focused on real-world impact. So what are those recommendations that are actionable from a government perspective, from companies, from others uh, who can improve their own efficiency? But it's a, a real focus of ours, and uh, I think this graph shows why it uh, should be. This is opportunities, not just from uh, reducing emissions, but saving money, um, providing more uh, GDP output per the amount of energy we put into it. And these are very troubling, uh, very troubling trends. Um, I wanted to take you to the clean energy tracker. Um, 
and I wanted, uh, rather than focusing on all the yellow and the red that makes us all feel miserable, I, I wanted to focus on the greens. Uh, and maybe get your thoughts. You talked a little bit about the role of government in driving this. You know, why are these greens, green dots green? And if I wanted to sort of copy what we've learned from how to make them green, what would you, what would you say? So it's an area we've spent a good bit of time on focusing, and frankly, I think more analysis should be done on this, right? Why are certain sectors and technologies um, having the cost reductions, having the deployment? What's um, replicable that could be then brought to the other uh, yellow and red categories, and what's not replicable? So certainly one thing we see in all of these areas um, is the uh, government investment that led to the technologies that led to their commercial deployment. And so the innovation piece is a very significant part of the table. I don't think it gets appreciated as much. All the great work done by US DOE national labs, um, by other DOE colleagues in the Forrestal building, um, by all the other uh, academics, researchers around the world doing some of the materials research, doing some of that earlier stage research that then allows the opportunity for some of these technologies to come along. And so certainly you could trace that whether it's the solar PV side or the battery storage, uh, other kinds of areas uh, as well. What you also see, lighting is certainly another example of that. What you also see is where we are seeing some successes are those areas that don't have huge upfront capital costs. So lighting is an example of that, even the battery storage piece of the equation. So compare that to CCUS technology, for instance, that does have a huge upfront cost uh, that governments would need to be would need to be born unless you have some kind of carbon tax or other pricing scheme that allows that the incentives to, to be along those lines. So you see a number of lessons uh, lessons learned along those lines. And the other thing to say is, uh, I don't want to make you more depressed, Nikos, but um, those are only green assuming everything else is green, right? Because they're doing their share of what's necessary to get us to that sustainable development scenario. So if everything else isn't green, then they need to be even greener in doing more um, more than their load, um, which, you know, just to put that uh, that bit into context. No, and thank you for, for highlighting that because, you know, it is that interesting contrast. You showed the electric vehicle graph and then you resized the, the axis and we saw that how far we are. And that's green. That's progress. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that contrast was striking. Um, let me switch a little bit to the nuclear part of the conversation. Uh, when you started going into the part of the presentation on hydrogen, you talked about enthusiasm, excitement, great reception, everyone wants to do hydrogen. You skipped that part of the nuclear. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little about the reaction that this report is getting, uh, particularly in the context of the conversations that, at least in this part of the world, folks are having your nuclear range somewhere between I just watched Chernobyl on HBO or uh, nuclear power plants are struggling and are asking for support and bailouts. So walk us through a little bit the reaction that you're getting from, from the various people that you're talking to about this report. Well, it's exactly why we did the report at this particular moment in time after not really focusing uh, at least in-depth on analytically on nuclear for a couple decades at the, the IEA. Um, 
is because we didn't think um, people were being presented with this kind of information, especially on the lifetime extension part of the equation. Now it's up for each government to figure out uh, through the political leadership um, what they want to do or not do based on their own political circumstances. And our job at the IEA as a technical global agency working for governments is here's information, here's analysis that could be helpful to inform your decision making. So that decisions are being made in a more informed way of here's the consequence if you don't do the lifetime extensions. Now, um, those consequences you may want to live with, you may be fine with that, but at least you're aware of those consequences in order to make those decisions and those, those trade-off uh, kind of uh, pieces to it. And what you see is uh, not a whole lot of focus and not the same kind of, as you were saying in your question, explicitly and implicitly, um, not the same kind of enthusiasm or momentum going forward. And uh, it's also very useful to think about the new nuclear versus the lifetime extensions differently as well. And this report really focuses much more on the lifetime extensions piece of it. So if the, uh, if the challenges uh, are X, Y, and Z on the new nuclear, um, here's what the challenges and opportunities are in the lifetime. And as you remember from that cost graph, it's quite a bit different, um, even more so in other countries and regions around the world, but in the U.S. in significant uh, amounts of ways as well. So um, the whole point of doing this report, again, was uh, put information analysis out there for decision makers to take it going forward. And if they go down one path or another, then there are consequences to that, and they should at least be informed by that, and there should be a good public discussion, public debate about what path each country wants to go down. But that's exactly why, in some ways, we did the report on um, hydrogen because it was receiving so much attention and momentum, and we wanted to cut through the hype and really give some real numbers on that. Uh, we did the opposite in some ways on the nuclear. It wasn't getting as much attention as we thought decisions, very important decisions that uh, represent a significant amount of the current, 18% of uh, current electricity generation in the advanced economies by nuclear. That's a big, big percentage. Um, it wasn't getting as much attention, and so you do a report to bring some attention to the, to the issue. No, and I think that's, that's very useful, especially the, the distinction between keeping the existing fleet running and building new nuclear. I think that is a distinction that is often lost. And, and I particularly appreciate it uh, because that was one of my takeaways from the uh, global CO2 report of how much the growth of renewables has basically just offset the decline of nuclear and, and what challenge that presents for, for, the, for the world. Uh, so I appreciate that. Um, let me switch a little bit on, on hydrogen. Um, and I wanted to ask... Uh, sort of two questions on the cost of hydrogen uh, that I wanted to hear your thoughts on. Um, one is you showed that incredible chart with uh, where the cost of hydrogen could get to. Um, and you alluded to sort of $2 per kilogram being kind of like a good number. Um, but I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on that. How do we think about the competitiveness of hydrogen, not just in terms of its own cost curve, but where it needs energy? Um, and the second part of the, the question is actually on that chart, if you go back one, that, the renewables piece. And what I think of this is, one is the cost of renewables, and the second one is sort of the cost of using renewables to create hydrogen. So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit the cost curve on, on that. How much of that overall reduction at the end of the day is going to be because renewable gets cheaper, and how much of the reduction is going to be because we learn how to make hydrogen in a more cost-effective way. 
So in some ways, the, uh, the real opportunity of hydrogen um, is also its biggest disadvantage and that the biggest opportunity for hydrogen, it's very flexible, right? It's a liquid storage medium, if you want to kind of think of it that way, that has a bunch of different chemical pathways, different ways to produce it, um, different ways it can be useful um, in transport and buildings and power generation and all sorts of other kind of applications for it. Um, now, I say it's uh, its biggest advantage, versatility is usually a good thing, um, but the challenge is if you want to have it available for those variety of sources, you need to build out the infrastructure. You need to think through, okay, what are the ways you build out the, whether it's through pipelines or some other mode of transport. So um, that's a very daunting equation um, for those who've been involved in building out the electricity infrastructure or the natural gas infrastructure. Those are huge investments with all sorts of uh, decision-making needing to be done uh, well in advance. And so uh, it's both versatilities, it's both its, its biggest uh, opportunity, but also its biggest uh, challenge in those ways. Um, in terms of the costs, I mean, just looking at the chart, uh, chart there behind us or those to the side there. So um, two ways to get to the clean hydrogen, of course, speaking simply, one is with CCUS, and you see relatively attractive cost opportunities there from the natural gas without CCUS to the CCUS, again, the blue hydrogen uh, opportunity space. And given the amount of existing, as we talked about, 6% of overall natural gas going into hydrogen production, um, CCUS represents in the near term a huge opportunity to green up that hydrogen and to use that as a springboard uh, going forward. So that's part of the cost equation, especially in the near term. If you look out uh, uh, additionally going forward, you have to move that renewables bar to something much more cost effective uh, through a variety of means. Now, this is where it's, uh, I think, intriguing to think about where governments are, especially those governments who've made uh, net zero commitments in the relatively short term and dealing with those hard to decarbonize sectors. What's the plan to get there, right? What are the technologies to get there? Do you just rely on some uh, silver bullet to deal with steel or to deal with uh, air, air, airplane emission or airplane fuels, et cetera, or do you think about how these different chemical pathways and how the hydrogen equation can be part of that uh, going forward? So in some ways, you've got to make the investments um, to get you to a point where you drive those costs down and get those, some of those versatility, uh, versatility opportunities, uh, opportunities going forward. That's a very daunting proposition, especially when more and more of the investment these days in energy is looking for near-term gains, right? Instead of uh, uh, building infrastructure that goes on for decades, everybody wants, well, what's the near-term investment that's gonna provide the benefit right away in a very cost-effective way? So hydrogen has its challenges, uh, has its challenges along those lines. Um, during the course of writing this report, I went back on hydrogen uh, to sort of being, well, it, it is hyped, um, or no, this really does have a potential and I still a little bit of two minds on that. I think it really will be for governments to, uh, to, to determine large part through their investments and in schemes, et cetera. And that's where uh, what we thought the primary recommendations coming out, including to reduce those costs, were these near-term opportunities, right? Look at the real world where the hydrogen currently is produced. What are those lower hanging fruit opportunities? The more you take advantage of that, you drive those other costs down even further. And then you allow the opportunity for hydrogen to be a tool in your tool belt 10 years, 20 years from now in a way that it's not currently. So in some ways, it's a hedging strategy or it's a strategy to, again, diversify um, given hydrogen's uh, flexibility. 
but the cost piece, it was no, there's a reason we included that as the first challenge among those other challenges uh, on that equation. And, you know, we'll see where we're at five, 10 years from now, but it definitely, um, uh, the momentum and the interest from a diversity, I think the diversity piece is key, diversity of countries, diversity of companies, different ways they're thinking about it, different fuel sources, different uses of that hydrogen uh, is different from our analysis than it's been previously. Whether that gets us to where we, where hydrogen proponents want us to go or not will be seen. So if I think about your cost on the sort of next page and I think about sort of the quote unquote fuel switching point, um, you know, on the, the map there, yeah. Um, I mean, is, you know, below 1.6, that's a place where you can see hydrogen really grabbing market share, you know, help us understand kind of like the, the not the demand potential, but the fuel switching potential. And uh, you talked about $2, uh, but maybe build up a little bit on that. So this is where I think the interrelation of all of these issues, just thinking of electricity or energy more broadly is, right? If you think about renewables uh, with the price points that they're at coming more and more into the system, um, and you think about, well, what do we do with seasonal um, differences? What do we do with uh, areas that don't have the same renewables potential as other areas? And then you start looking at some prices that get into this range, you could really see um, exporting sunshine really working, right? Like you can see Chile exporting up to the US, you could see Australia going to Japan, you could see North Africa going into Europe in really interesting ways, assuming you get the various parts of the technology at a reasonable cost, including the international, international trade piece of it. You could see even within regions, the seasonal storage possibility, right? If hydrogen um, ends up being the technology that is most cost effective to do those seasonal storage, right? You produce the hydrogen molecules, you store those hydrogen molecules, and there are ways to store that uh, at, at vast scale. There are some um, already some experiences along those lines. You could see that being uh, quite attractive. So in some ways, what you have to think about is what does the world look like or need to look like 20, 30 years from now? And then how do you how do you figure out what's going to potentially be most cost effective there? Now, anytime you try to look out more than a few years, it gets very difficult to know what's going to happen. And that's why I go back to say, uh, if the world wants to have a variety of tools in its tool belt, the hydrogen tool is a quite attractive tool to have in the tool belt, and you need to, but you need to work on the tool, right? You need to develop it. You need to have it be a robust tool, which is these springboard opportunities in the near term. Excellent. Thank you. We'll uh, come to you for questions. Uh, three basic rules. One, wait for the mic. Two, introduce yourself. And three, question in the form of a question. Uh, let's start right here at the front. Hi, Jeff Epping with Energis LLC. Thanks, uh, David, for the wide-ranging discussion. But sticking with hydrogen uh, for a minute, how do you, did you guys delve into how things play out uh, in the vehicles, uh, battery-driven vehicles versus fuel cell, creating demand for hydrogen? And then also, can you talk a little bit about how, how hydrogen could be transported, especially across uh, overseas, uh, relative to how LNG is done today? Thanks. So. Um we do uh, do an extensive uh, breakdown of the costs, the price points, uh, looking at battery fuel cell technologies, et cetera. It's ended up being a 199-page report. 
Our executive director, uh, when we started this project about eight months ago, called a colleague of mine, Timur Gul, and, and I together, we were leading this effort. He said, let's try to do a report of something like 60 to 100 pages. <laughs> I don't know if we're overachievers or what, but we ended up doing a 199-page report. And uh, actually, the longest section ended up being on the transport side of things. And so there's some really good uh, in-depth analysis uh, along those lines. Um, and uh, um, I think when most people think hydrogen, they think fuel cell vehicles, which is only one part of the application, even in transport, for, for hydrogen going forward. Certainly, as you look at the technologies where they are now and where they're going forward, you see some complementarities in terms of what battery storage or EVs can do versus fuel cell vehicles. One is the, uh, the range, right? Electric vehicles with battery storage being a little bit better on the shorter range side of things, uh, whereas fuel cells, the economics, the other um, reasons uh, hydrogen might be attractive in that context. That's one dynamic. Um, the other dynamic is uh, more the heavy-duty shipping, but also uh, heavy-duty freight as well, where, again, electrification right now is more challenging in that area. It's not to say that we won't find technical solutions. You could have um, you know, like with trains, the, the electricity line going overhead, and there's some thoughts of doing that along corridors. But um, for dealing with that heavy-duty freight transport, hydrogen offers up some really attractive uh, opportunities, buses, other kinds of vehicles along those lines. So we didn't uh, make a definitive, um, this part of the equation should be done, EVs, this part of the equation should be done, fuel cells, obviously the market will play that out. Different countries will have different reasons for going down different paths. Um, but there um, is a level of complementarity, I think, that's not as uh, easily recognized by either proponents on the hydrogen side or on the EV side, right? Like there is a way that these two things can coexist, especially um, for, for, for having versatility uh, going forward along those lines. And then on the transport side of things, especially if you think of a map like that, how do you get the hydrogen from one place to another? Um, we have a whole chapter devoted to the transmission and distribution of hydrogen. and so. There's the long distance transport piece, um, whether to be done by um, pipeline or uh, ships like LNG. There's a variety of different ways you could do that technologically speaking, whether um, in ammonium form, whether in hydrogen form, uh, et cetera. And we go into all of that in the report in quite detail. So both the long distance transport side of things and then very importantly, the distribution side of things as well, depending again how it's used. Um, do you do that by pipeline? Um, that's expensive, depending on how many pipelines, what, the, what, what you do, can you use, uh, refurbish existing pipelines? Or uh, you do it by mobile, uh, you know, at least to start, you do it by uh, trucks or whatnot to get it to refueling stations if you're talking on the transport side of things. We go into all of those. What we try to do in this report is, again, to cut through a little bit of the hype and here are the numbers and here's where the latest state of technology is and then look ahead on that technology. We did not do a full-blown scenario of what hydrogen could look like in the system. We'll actually be doing some of that going forward in our world energy outlook and some of our other analysis going forward. So we're not done with hydrogen because of the interest. Um, we'll be actually looking at a variety of other, of other lenses. But the report right now, to my eye, is uh, uh, the, the best place um, anywhere to look at those existing price points, cost, um, and considerations. And it will guide our work going forward as well. There in the back. Um, hello. Um, I've, I'm, a, I'm a little ignorant about nuclear power, 
Could you please tell us something about what lifetime extension means? Because it seems just from a, an observer, general observer, that there are some problems with some of the technologies and there are some problems with some of the siting, you know, seismically with some of the plants and so forth. So, so what, does, what would that involve in, in various different ways? Um, we lay this out in, in some detail in the report and different countries do things a little bit differently. Um, but in general terms, um, when nuclear plants were created in the U.S., the average age is 39 years old. So when they were first created, they were envisioned to have a certain lifetime and they got regulatory permitting and other kinds of uh, permitting to allow them to exist that long, if you will. So. Um, if you want to go beyond that, you need to get the regulatory sign off in order to have that extension going forward. And um, again, different countries deal with it differently. Some are rolling 10 year kind of extensions. Others are for 20 years, uh, even looking out into 80 year timeframes. And obviously technology has changed quite a bit. This is an opportunity if you have the extension for there to be significant uh, refurbishment upgrades safety enhancements, all the kinds of things that you would imagine wanting to do um, in order to make sure that uh, um, it's safe, it's, you know, all, all the reasons that, 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 uh, that you would want to do those kinds of decisions. So again, different countries do it differently, but those are the decisions um, being faced by, um, uh, by governments around the world. Do you extend or do you not extend? And under what circumstances do you extend? What's the safety protocols? What's the safety regime? All of those considerations are happening. And what we see is, uh, and we detail this in the report in detail, for a number of market-driven reasons, natural gas being so cheap, renewables being so cheap, um, more liberalized energy markets uh, where the instead of having a guaranteed return of investment for a nuclear plant, it's competing with other um, solar, nuclear, gas, et cetera. Those market dynamics um, right now, and again, go to the top recommendation, aren't internalizing um, some of the benefits that nuclear is providing to the system as a whole, certainly the decarbonization, but also the baseload power part to it. And so the point of this report is, if you think about those issues, then it may lead you to a different decision as opposed to just relying on market dynamics and thinking along those lines. So there's a number of ways you can do that. Um, you could have a carbon tax or some kind of price explicitly. You could have a shadow price that internalizes that. There's different schemes that are being done by different states and other regulators in the U.S. context and internationally. Um, we're less prescriptive on the particular means of it, but if you're a government thinking of it holistically in terms of your whole electricity system going forward, it's something you should think about. And if you value those services, then you need to have the incentives to value those services. Otherwise, you know, the market will inevitably lead to devalue those and you'll get the, the retirements. And of course, the irony in all this is that, you know, the place where you're seeing the most retirements is Europe, which does have a carbon price and the carbon market and the commitment to this. So the, the challenge is sometimes beyond just having a carbon price, that you need that broader kind of commitment that you talked about and the recognition of what it brings to the table. Well, in, in different politics, different governments are in different places, right? Like um, some countries are very much uh, anti-nuclear. Um, some countries who have uh, um, 
nuclear plants are trying to get out of the business. Interesting politics going on in France on that equation where France produces the bulk of its electricity and uh, with its nuclear free fleet right now. At the IEA, we work for governments, not the other way around. We're not going to tell them what they should, which this technology or that technology. It's more the consequences of decisions, and you know, governments need to make that uh, those decisions. Uh, up here, Lachlan. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Gene Rosetti, uh, just retired management consultant. Uh, if we could go back to the first three slides, I had one thing kind of. Stuck in my mind. A second. It's a lot of slides. Oh boy. <laughs> no, no, it won't make sense before you get there. May not make sense anyway. All right. That's the first. Okay. One. Yeah. Uh, the first three. When you when you look at the slides, and we went immediately to to 2018. That's fine. But I couldn't help looking at 2015 in the way it appears in the in the first, second, and third slides, and I get the feeling that you know was this a total fluke or did we uh, come a stumble on something very significant and then manage to forget about it in the years that followed? If you look at that, you know it doesn't. And there's the 2015 with the look, Yeah, and look, you know, looking good there and looking good there. Uh, <laughs> what did we do? So Somebody, right guy came to work that day or something. <laughs> so several things go on. And this is where it's um, a lot of times with these kinds of numbers, less useful to look any individual year where you have uh, significant differences uh, in years um, and look at overall trends uh, as well. Certainly, the efficiency sticks out quite significantly there, right? That's where we almost were at that 3% level where we need to be at that level on a yearly improvement um, rate going forward. Now, um, factors uh, that go into this is how, um, how hot is your economy, right? Like um, in the 2018, we had a hot economy. It was a 3.7, 3.7, I think, percent GDP growth around the world. That was one of the reasons why the energy demand increased significantly. Secondly, was uh, energy intensity. Energy intensity is a combination of efficiency policies, uh, both the coverage of policies as well as the rigor of policies. One thing that we're seeing as we look uh, over this period of time is we are not seeing the policy coverage in a variety of areas and the rigor that we would like to see. And so even if you have coverage, it's not ramping up, right, in a lot of countries. And so you need that rigor, and that's part of what's driving on the, the efficiency. But there's also sectoral changes happening. China, what happens in China in any given year makes a big difference. And China is going through an economic transformation that is allowing its economy to be more efficient, moving more to a service economy, less heavy manufacturing, et cetera. The other dynamic you see is weather patterns in any given year. So one thing that's quite striking is uh, in the 2018 time period, a full one-fifth of that in, in, increase in energy demand was caused by warmer summers and colder winters. So uh, the weather dynamics, of course, uh, global warming will change those weather pictures over a period of time, uh, but 2018 actually saw colder winters in many places that drove up that energy demand, including in the U.S. in significant ways, warmer summers as well. Part of that's an unhelpful feedback cycle, right, as you have more global warming 
you have need to have more energy to power those air conditioners in a variety of uh, a variety of areas along those lines. So there's a bit of noise in all of these kinds of, uh, of, of pieces to it that don't lend itself to looking in any one year uh, in particular. And that's where um, if you were excited by those numbers that you saw in this uh, time period, 2014, 15, 16, we're decoupling, we peaked, we're going down. Uh, 2017, 2018 should say we've got a lot more work that we need to do. And, and uh, the trend is more in the middle of both of those in some ways. Thanks, uh, David Hart from ITIF. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the LCOEs? Because they seem a little bit different than what we see from other sources. And also, more specifically, how do the uh, how does nuclear waste get treated in, in that, if you know that? I know that's a pretty uh, detailed. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to the, um, yeah. And these numbers are, so this is LCOE uh, go, going on. So um, very challenging to try to do apples to apples comparison on costs, right? This is not an easy thing for those who have done that kind of work. We spend a lot of time at the IEA trying to do that in a way that has integrity and credibility to it, just calling it like we see the numbers. Um, as I was saying before the, the before the mic was on, I'm not sure everybody heard me. Um, we are also trying to uh, look at a value-adjusted LCOE so that you don't you really are truly doing an apples to apples, even more of an apples to apples. This was a new thing we did in our World Energy Outlook, our WEO, our flagship publication last year in the 2018 version. We'll have some additional numbers in the 2019 version when that comes out in November. Really trying to value. Um, not every source of electricity is the same in terms of the system requirements and the system benefits, right? Nuclear has the baseload power versus renewables, um, et cetera, et cetera, along those lines. And so you see in the report uh, the value-adjusted LCOE being slightly different numbers, although the relative price points are largely the same. There's some um, differences between regions and, and whatnot along those lines. Um, Lifetime extension is trying to take into account um, the costs of uh, storage of the waste, uh, long-term storage of the waste, in part why you see the lifetime extension being so uh, relatively um, low is the fact that um, you're still going to need to uh, deal with the closure of the plant and other kinds of costs regardless of whether you extend or not, you know what I mean? So you've made the investments to put this infrastructure in place, this is just having that additional uh, production for 10 or 20 or however many years the lifetime extension is for. And part of the reason the costs are low is uh, the uranium uh, cost of fuel is quite low compared to some of the other costs of fuel on a marginal basis. And so that makes it low and compensates uh, for some of the storage and other kinds of uh, pieces to it. And some of the storage has been being done now for literally decades of time. And so you've gotten some cost reductions uh, along those lines, uh, along those lines going forward. I had a couple more, if I can take them together, because we're getting towards the end of time. One here, and then Will, 
then actually this three people straight in one line. So start from here. Good morning. My name is Steve Meyer. I've been consulting in energy and infrastructure projects. And my question is along the same lines. Uh, David, first of all, thank you for your presentation. It was great. But solar PV, uh, LCOE, of course, is a lot different than first time cost. Nevertheless, you got 10 cents up there, $100 per megawatt hour. We're seeing first time cost, three and a half cents, five cents, five cents with battery. That seems to be significantly different. And of course, that affects all your scenarios. Are you able to comment on that? Okay. Let's get Will and then. Uh, Will Cole from Johns Hopkins. I was wondering on, back on nuclear, did, uh, in, does this report discuss very much uh, uh, the future of smaller scale nuclear reactors and, and how that's going to impact? Uh, future demand. And then right next to you. Thank you. Emmanuel Wagner with Technology Transition Corporation. Um, I just wanted to see if you had um, some considerations or key um, political challenges um, that you can um, ascertain related to uh, hydrogen and expansion to hydrogen. You talked about the technology aspects of it, but what are sort of the key political barriers that need to be overcome? No, thanks for uh, thanks for all the questions. So, um, Steve, your question on PV costs is this the right costs or um, should it be different? So um, we try to lay out and we try to do things. I hope in a transparent kind of way at the IEA, and more than happy to put you in touch with some of the experts who do the PV costing in particular to um, kick things around. All of our reports um, end up being peer-reviewed, and uh, we have a lot of back and forth by people who think the cost should be here, 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 or whatnot. On the hydrogen uh, report, I think we ended up having uh, something like 3,600 uh, peer-reviewed comments of one kind or another. <laughs> so just to give you a sense of the the rigor that we uh, we, we try to go uh, we try to go along those lines. So. Um, happy to put you in touch with the right folks to try to really um, drill down and what we try to do we're independent we're credit, we try to uh, factor in the kinds of pieces now you see you're seeing some huge cost reductions i mentioned the 65 percent cost reductions in pv over five years that's a huge cost reductions driving some of those uh, um, solar pv numbers around the world in incredible kinds of ways you're seeing some auction numbers that are um, incredible around a variety of different uh, countries some of those have different schemes associated with them that when you translate into an LCOE, kind of uh, apples to apples comparison gets shifted around a little bit, just the way the, the kinds of deals are structured or whatnot along those lines. But happy if it's uh, useful to, have to put you in touch with the right folks on that. Will, to your question on, on SMREs, um, we do highlight this in the report. Um, the report is mostly focused on the lifetime extension issue because that was what we thought most useful to flag for policymakers who are making decisions literally now about where whether we're going to go down that steep ramp and that nuclear nuclear fade case versus other cases. Uh, most of the excitement and interest uh, in new nuclear build, uh, especially in advanced economies, there is some new nuclear being built in uh, China, for instance, and some other uh, countries in the emerging world who just have that insatiable appetite for new capacity 
on the electricity side is really on the uh, SMREs or even micro reactors of the even smaller kind. We outline, uh, we have a nice uh, chart in the report outlining the different technologies around the world, the different companies, what stage they're at, whether they're in uh, um, more the uh, R&D stage or whether they're at the point where they're trying to like new scale in the U.S., trying to get the permitting and regular, regulatory sign-off to go forward. Um, especially in advanced economies, the market dynamics of the SMRs, especially if you can drive down costs, right? That's the whole go goal there is to try to drive down costs. Um, they're small, they're modular, you can add on to them. You don't need to make a huge uh, single decision that you're gonna live with for 40 years in a very uncertain energy environment. You can do it in a, the small kind of modular way. Um, a lot of those new technologies have some enhanced safety features, the passive safety features that uh, um, can alleviate some of the concerns on a Fukushima type situation. So they have some safety uh, uh, pieces built in. And there's a variety of different technologies being uh, being worked on in those ways. So we didn't focus on it extensively to say, yes, this is the technology that's going to succeed or this isn't. And that's not what we do more generally. They uh, very difficult to compare different technologies. But there is a wide variety of interest in this issue from the government and from private sector as well. And so there's a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm on that part of the nuclear, I think, equation uh, going forward. Again, we'll have to see what wins out uh, wins out in the end. And on the questions on, uh, on hydrogen, uh, in additional, beyond the barriers technologically or cost points, there are some significant political, um, uh, political considerations, one of which, again, is safety, which is a big thing on the nuclear side as well. So hydrogen is more flammable. It is more challenging to deal with. When I mentioned using existing pipelines to, uh, to, 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 to put 5% blend of uh, hydrogen in with natural gas, one of the reasons you can only do 5% is you need to have some uh, safety enhancements if you go above a certain level, given the different nature of the molecules versus natural gas kind of piece of it. And um, ammonium is uh, a challenging substance to work with in a number of instances. So if that's your storage medium, you'll need to deal with some of those safety considerations. So that's one of the issues. Again, like with nuclear, if you're a government and you wanna have the social license to do some of these technologies or a company, you got to deal with those issues head on in a transparent way. And we outlined some of those both on the uh, hydrogen side and the nuclear side that needs to be focused on and overcome. Well, Dave, thank you uh, so much for this. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount. And I think the main takeaway that I got from this is go read the reports. Uh, there's a lot of very good material. Uh, and the IA obviously always, as I said in the beginning, pushes the boundaries of our understanding of these topics. So thank you for coming here today to share your work in these important areas and we look forward to the next time you're here. Thanks again.